Find Exodus 1. We'll come back to our prayer list later. Exodus 1. And uh, we'll pick up reading tonight at verse 8. And we'll read down through the end of the chapter. Exodus 1. Beginning in verse 8. Out with the old, in with the new. Out with the old, in with the new. Exodus 1. Got it? Eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shiprah and Puah, When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more uh, vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. I ran across the top 10 New Year's resolutions that were based on this particular website. Number one, focus on a passion that you have. Number two, work out to feel good not just to lose weight. Number three, stop gossiping. Number four, give at least one compliment a day. Number five, go a day periodically without checking your email or social media. Number six, do random acts of kindness. Number seven, read a book a month. Number eight, go somewhere 
you have never been. Number nine, clear out clutter. And finally, number ten, cut your phone completely off periodically for extended periods of time. Some of those pretty good resolutions, aren't they? It's funny how something as simple as turning over a new year on the calendar can make some people think all of a sudden about old habits that they want to get rid of and then new habits that they want to institute. Well, in chapter 1 of Exodus, we see out with the old, in with the new, but in a sad kind of way. Tragically, we are told in verse 7 that there is a new Pharaoh who comes to power and he and his people remember nothing about Joseph anymore. Joseph is out. He's gone. He's dead. And no one remembers the blessing that Joseph had been to the people of Egypt. Folks, what we'll see tonight in our text is that we often forget past blessings and the people who gave them instead of building upon their legacies. And because of that, we're the poor for it. But it was even worse than that in this case, though. It was actually sinful, and it led Pharaoh to do even more sinful practices because he forgot Joseph. If you're taking notes with us tonight, write down, first of all, a change in power. A change in power. Now, if you look again at verse 8, verse 8 records for us some very ominous words. It says, eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. And so Israel is now about to go from... Prosperity to persecution related to their sojourn in the land of Egypt. What had been a promising place to grow into a nation has now become a house of bondage. It just goes to show you how quickly things can change, right? But we also need to remember something important. God had never intended Egypt to be the promised land for Jacob's descendants. But as long as Joseph had been alive, it had been a wonderful place of privilege for the children of Israel to raise their families. I think there's an important lesson here. Don't assume that good circumstances on earth will always last. Don't assume that your good circumstances, if you're going through good circumstances right now, don't assume that those will always last. Because you and I need to remember something. We live in a fallen world, and since Genesis chapter 4 Murder and violence has been very much a part of the picture when Cain rose up and killed Abel. So again, don't assume that living in a fallen world that is so permeated by evil and violence that good, good circumstances are always going to continue. But remember how good it had been for Joseph and his family. When Jacob died and they took Jacob back to Canaan to bury him, 
Do you remember what else happened as they were taking him back to bury him? That just goes to show you what the Pharaoh at the time and the Egyptians at the time thought about him. What happened? They sent a big entourage of high officials along with him. And we're told that all of Egypt mourned along with Joseph. And so obviously Joseph had been held in very high esteem. Well, true to his word, God has been blessing the descendants of Abraham. God told Abraham that his descendants would multiply and become as numerous as the stars in the sky above. And folks, this is happening. God is bringing this promise to pass. Now, this shouldn't surprise us at all because we serve a God who cannot lie. As Paul says in Titus 1-2, God promised Abraham that his descendants would multiply and when we turn the page from Genesis 50 into Exodus 1, that's exactly what we see. The children of Israel multiplying greatly. But now there is a new Egyptian dynasty that's come to power. And unfortunately, they know nothing about Joseph demonstrating that a number of decades have now passed. A significant amount of time has elapsed. The new powers in charge feel no obligation whatsoever towards the Hebrews. In fact, they've begun to fear them. Now, when you look at verse 9, the Hebrew of verse 9 indicates that the Hebrews are too numerous and too powerful with both concepts being communicated. Some translations concentrate more on that the Hebrews have just simply become too numerous. But the Hebrew is actually they've become too numerous and too powerful. So both, both things are going on. Well, secondly, I want you to see a new strategy. A new strategy. Immediately, the new Pharaoh want, wants to play on the fears of his people. He's stoking this fear. He tries to paint this picture that if the situation continues the way it is, it might end up a deadly scenario for the Egyptians. Now, they have no evidence whatsoever uh, that that's what's going to happen. But nevertheless, that's what the Pharaoh is trying to do. He's trying to create that fear in their hearts and minds and make them believe that. That somehow or another the Hebrews are going to end up a great threat to the Egyptians. Now there's an interesting rabbinic tradition about this verse here that has the Pharaoh substituting the third person for the first person plural, meaning that we, the Egyptians, will have to go up out of the land if this continues. In fact, the Hebrews are going to become so powerful, they're going to drive us out of our own country. We're going to lose our own country. But 
If we read it the way it is in the text, the fear is that the Hebrews will leave. And by the Hebrews leaving, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the Egyptians? They're going to lose their slave labor. They're going to lose their labor pool, their manpower. They've got a rich resource, human resources. They're going to lose all that. And so what's the Pharaoh say? We must deal shrewdly with them. Now, we don't have to wait to see what his plan is going to be because right away we're told his plan is what? To enslave the Hebrews. Now, folks, let's also not forget this is exactly what God told Abraham back in Genesis 15, 13. God had said this. God had said to Abraham, your descendants are going to be slaves in a foreign land for more than 400 years. They're going to be enslaved and their time there is going to be bitter. And so God had told Abraham this is what was going to happen. Now, one of the interesting literary features of the book of Exodus is how words or phrases can come in sevens. And let me... Let me tell you what I mean by that. In verses 13 and 14, it says, So the Egyptians made the children of Israel work, number one, with rigor, number two, made their lives bitter with hard service, three, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of Work, number four, in the field, in addition to all their other work wherein they made them serve with rigor. So kind of piling up words that basically say the same thing. That's a literary characteristic of Exodus. Did I say Ephesians a while ago? I meant Exodus. Did I say Exodus? Okay. Okay. Anyway, Pharaoh is cracking the whip. And with each blow, as Philip Ryken says, Pharaoh was striking another blow at the God of Israel. You see, ultimately, what is this? This is a spiritual conflict. It's a spiritual conflict. Pharaoh resented God's people and how God had blessed them. The Israelites were to be a nation for God's glory and God has been bringing His promise to pass in them. But Pharaoh is now trying to stifle that and even stop it. And therefore Pharaoh is fighting against God and the promises of God. Not only is he fighting against God and the promises of God, he's fighting against God's plan. Because God's plan, again, going back to Genesis 15, was to lead them to their own land. Pharaoh is trying to prevent this. Riken says it's interesting to note that Pharaoh's name, though, is not given because Pharaoh is not the point. The question will not be for historians who is the Pharaoh 
of the book of Exodus. Rather, the people were always to remember the God of the Exodus. As people would read this story all the way down to the current time, what are people to say? What an awesome God we have. That's the point. We're to be reminded that when God says He will do something, He will do it, and all the pharaohs of the world can't stop it. Pharaoh will also be saying, that the Hebrews will not serve their God, but rather they will serve me. Well, we'll see about that, right? Now, for all of these reasons, the famous preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse once pointed out that the Exodus is not simply an epic tale of Pharaoh against Moses, or even the Egyptians against the Israelites. He says the story of the Exodus is instead a story about the ongoing war between God and Satan. And Satan will not prevail. Now if you do much reading on Exodus, you'll find that those who argue for a late date of the Exodus, that is a 1260 B.C. date instead of a 1446 date, an earlier date, they will use the names of these two cities here, uh, Pithon and Ramses. They'll use that as evidence for a later date because they'll say, these cities were actually not named that if the Exodus is to be dated back in 1446. But really their argument's not conclusive at all, one way or the other. It may be for the sake of generations to come, we're simply giving, given the names of these two cities as they would come to be named. Well, thirdly, I want you to see God's immediate response. You've got to love what happened. Here's Pharaoh saying, we must not let them multiply. And here's God responding, the more you oppress them, the more I'm going to make sure they multiply. You've got to love that. It's a powerful testimony to us today. Because if you try to fight against God, you're going to lose and you're going to lose big. You know what I can't help but think of? There's, this, there's an occurrence in the New Testament. In Philippians chapter 1. Some of you may know what I'm talking about, right? Philippians is known as what type of epistle? A prison epistle or a captivity letter. Paul's first imprisonment. Uh, Paul was imprisoned twice and of course the second imprisonment is when he died the second imprisonment it lies in behind 2 Timothy 4 first imprisonment lies in behind Philippians 1 
And you remember what's going on in the hearts and minds of the Philippians. They're scared to death for Paul. They're worried for Paul because he's in prison. He says, I want you to know what has happened to me has turned out rather for the furtherance of the gospel. He wanted to take the gospel to Rome. Well, he took the gospel to Rome. He's in prison. And he says, I'm, I'm chained to the praetorium guard, the most elite guard in Rome, he says, I'm getting the gospel out into Caesar's household. Under Caesar's nose. So what looked like it was going to be a situation of defeat, Paul says, look at how it has furthered the gospel. Same type thing is going on here. You've got to absolutely love the way God does things. Paul also writes about that in 1 Corinthians 1, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians 1, he talks about the wisdom of men and the wisdom of God. He says, in the wisdom of men, men think that they're going to be able to reach up to God, and they can't. And he goes on to say, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. Saying, watch this, watch this. Watch what I'm going to do, exactly. <laughs> so here's the wisdom of men in Exodus 1 that we're seeing. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are thinking, we'll show them. But God says, just like, like you've implied, watch this. And he multiplies the Hebrews all the more. The God who sent them down to Egypt in the first place will be the same God who gets them out of Egypt. And Pharaoh and his people aren't going to be able to do a single thing to stop it. As has been pointed out also by enslaving the Israelites, the new Pharaoh actually helped solidify them even more into a nation. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon made that point. Listen to what Charles uh, Spurgeon said, and I quote here. He says, In all probability, if they had been left to themselves, they would have been melted and absorbed into the Egyptian race and lost their identity as God's special people. They were content to be in Egypt, and they were quite willing to be Egyptianized. To a large degree, they began to adopt the superstitions and idolatries and iniquities of Egypt. And these things clung to them in after years to such a terrible extent that we can easily imagine that their heart must have turned aside very much toward the sins of Egypt. Yet all the while, God was resolved to bring them out of that evil connection. They must be a separated people. They could not be Egyptians nor yet live permanently like Egyptians. For Jehovah had chosen them for himself. And he meant to make an abiding difference between Israel and Egypt. So God used the oppression, the bondage, to knit their hearts more firmly together as a nation of people. 
Strange to say, one of the ways God preserved this difference was by enslaving his people to Pharaoh. Another writer also points out that through suffering, God changed their desires. He points out how God often uses suffering to get us to look up to Him and also ahead to see what's coming next. He makes the point that had the Egyptians never exposed the Hebrews to this suffering, they would probably never dreamed of leaving Egypt, much like Spurgeon had said. Egypt was the only home they had ever known. And they had grown, the only land this generation had ever known. And they had grown accustomed to the luxuries of Egypt. And so by bringing suffering on them, they got to the point they were ready to leave. Well, leaving Egypt, the persecution got people who grew up in England wanting to leave and come to a new land. Yeah. Folks, I have seen this even among our people when it, when it comes to some illnesses or some senior adults that get way up in years and they're racked with horrible pain all the time. Because of the suffering that they're going through, the physical suffering that they're going through, they say, Pastor, I can't wait to go to heaven. Yeah. The pain and suffering they're going through, they're, they're longing for a better place. So you see how God uses suffering to, to help get us to quit focusing on where we are and longing for something better. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because we really start saying, hey, we don't, we don't have a permanent place here. And then once we are delivered out of our sufferings, what do our sufferings cause us to do as we look back on them? And we're delivered out of it. To grow and mature, but I think I heard it. Praise Him. We have hearts of gratitude because we thank God for delivering us out of that. Folks, in the rest of the Old Testament, as I pointed out last week, whether it would be in the historical writings, in the prophets, in the wisdom literature, in the Psalms, what did the people continue to look back on? The Exodus. And when they would reflect back on the Exodus in those passages, they had hearts of praise to God and gratitude because God brought them out of Egypt. Oh, yeah. They do. Yes. And they're, they're grateful. Yeah, exactly. The point is, suffering has a redemptive element to it, right? I mean, look at the cross. The suffering of Jesus. 
God has a purpose in suffering. He has a purpose in your suffering. He has a purpose in His Son suffering on the cross. The just died for the unjust so that He might do what? Might bring us to God. Suffering is redemptive. Well, let's see Pharaoh's plan B. When suffering did not work, notice what Pharaoh orders up next. He orders up that these Hebrew midwives will kill all the male children. Now, you wonder why all the males, right? If he's just worried about numbers, killing the girls would work too. But remember what what was his fear? They're going to join our enemies and fight against us. And so what he's trying to do is reduce, not not just reduce the numbers for numbers sake alone, but he's trying to reduce potential soldiers. Now folks, obviously warfare today has a technological aspect to it, right? A woman can sit at a computer and push a button and send a missile. Now, that's not to say I have not, it's not to say that I haven't met a few women that I wouldn't want to tangle with physically either. (laughs) I've met some women that, man, they body slam just about any man I'm looking at in here tonight. But by and large, when you're talking about brute strength, especially in ancient times when when there wasn't this technology and computers and missiles and all that, when you were just looking for an army of brute strength, what were you looking for? The males. Now, with the sheer numbers of the Hebrews, because remember how the Hebrews are multiplying, These two Hebrew wives were probably what we would refer to today as head nurses. They probably had a staff of midwives that reported to them. Now what Pharaoh does here is to become an enemy of life and go against the creation mandate. What was the creation mandate in Genesis 1? What did God say to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. Pharaoh's striking out against that. The creation mandate. God's the one who creates life. To murder is an assault on God's creation of life. And it's an insult on God, again, because God's the creator of life and humans are made in the very image of God. Folks, I want you to think about the abortionists today, what they're doing. It is a direct assault on God and what God has ordained, whether they realize it or not. It's much more serious than even what they might be thinking they're doing. And by way of extension, by trying to snuff out Hebrew life, what's Satan's plan? Even though Pharaoh wouldn't have understood this, 
Satan's plan would be snuff out the Hebrews so that the coming Messiah one day. Exactly. Exactly. Pharaoh wouldn't have realized that, but Satan would have known that to, to attack the lineage. Yes, exactly. As one commentator points out, what we also have here is a spiritual analogy for us today in terms of body and soul. What we see here in Exodus 1 is what? Physical slavery and death. But for us today, spiritually speaking, what does sin do? Sin enslaves. What Jesus say happens to the one who commits sin? You become the slave of sin. And then what's the wages of sin? Death. Exactly. So there's an analogy of what happens to us spiritually, bondage and death. Now, what the, what the midwives engage in essentially is a case of civil disobedience. You know what civil disobedience is, right? When the authorities say do one thing and you don't. Like the apostles. The, in, in the book of Acts, the apostles were told, quit preaching in the name of Jesus. And you remember what the apostle said? Whether it's right to obey you or God, you decide, but for us, we're going to obey God. And that's exactly what the midwives did. Exactly. Yep. That's why I say what they're engaging in here is a case of civil disobedience. Folks, there are cases where God's law trumps man's law. And we need to be prepared to do what? To obey God. Now, it's a bit surprising to me some, some of the key voices down through church history who have criticized these midwives for lying and practicing deceit. And some of them even quote the proverb that says, lying is an abomination to the Lord. Some key voices in church history. I think that misses a valuable point. God obviously viewed this differently because we're told so here. We're told how God approved what they did. God saw what the Hebrew midwives did and what did He do? He blessed them for it. And gave them families of their own. So we don't have to wonder if what they did was right or not. God made the judgment what they did was a good thing. They saved lives. Took a lot of courage. Yeah. And plus the Hebrew wives, uh, Hebrew midwives make a valuable point here. These Hebrew women working out in the fields right up into the time of delivery probably would have 
would have delivered their babies very quickly. Even in cultures today, some of these third world countries where pregnant women are, they're working in fields, heavy labor out in fields right up to the point of birth. Man, they go into labor and drop the babies just like that. Yeah, yep. So even then, God had a scheme like you said, even how people women gave birth. Gave birth so quickly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because like, like I say, there's probably a lot of truth in it. Time they got word that a Hebrew woman was in labor and tried to get to her, baby's already been born. And so the midwives say, hey, these women aren't like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous. So ladies, if you get pregnant, what do you need to do? <laughs> Work out in the fields right up to, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, now, rather than covering verse 22, we're going to save verse 22 for when we get into chapter 2. I want to give you some lessons tonight, and I've got too many to give you, okay? I've got, I normally give you three or four. I've got seven lessons I want to give you tonight. Okay, number one, and I, I've already hinted at all of these, okay? Circumstances can change quickly in our lives. Good times don't necessarily last. Circumstances can quickly change in our lives. Good times don't necessarily last. Now, second lesson, riding piggyback to that one, the fact that our circumstances on earth can so quickly change should remind us that this world today, as it is, is not our permanent home. The fact that our circumstances on earth can so quickly change should remind us that this world as it is today is not our permanent home. Number three, we can quickly forget those who have come before us. And likewise, we can be quickly forgotten. We can quickly forget those who have come before us. And likewise, we can be quickly forgotten. Number four, not all earthly rulers are the same. Some are good leaders and some are wicked. Not all earthly rulers are the same. Some are good leaders. Some are wicked. Number five, the promises of God are secure. They cannot be undone. We should be very grateful for this. The promises of God are secure. They cannot be undone. We should be very grateful for this.
Number six, earthly powers are no match for God. Earthly powers are no match for God. And number seven, there's a time and a place for civil disobedience where we must obey God rather than men. There's a time and place for civil disobedience where we must obey God rather than men. Did you get them all? Which one did you miss? Well, good. You got them all. Okay. Any comments in closing? We covered a good bit of ground tonight. If this is paradise, we're in trouble. <laughs> Richard? Absolutely, we sure do. Yep.